Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. In this episode, we will have Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Uh, this is a podcast that we recorded several months ago. Uh, it is on Book 10 of the Confessions. But I have to say at the outset, we actually do not spend too much time uh, on Book 10 until towards the end of the podcast. We go on a long digression uh, in the first 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, for about the first 15 minutes, we talk about the nature of prayer um, and the fact that the Confessions is a prayer and what that means and how we pray. Uh, and then we go on another kind of conversation about what does it mean to call something good? Um, and so we talk actually in that uh, conversation a little bit about Augustine, and then we move actually into Aquinas. Um, so just to give you a heads up on that. Uh, also, uh, I just wanted to take this time to say thank you to uh, Stephen Deloney. Uh, we have a new Patreon supporter, um, and we appreciate your support on Patreon. Um, it, it helps uh, me pay for the costs of uploading and keeping this podcast on the internet. Um, so we're, we're well over 100,000 downloads at this point. I think we're up to 115,000 downloads. So lots of people are listening, um, and this is going out to help lots of people think about uh, the development of Christian theology and the Christian faith. Um, so we appreciate your support. We also had a nice uh, review from W. Cook. These guys are well studied and can go deep, but are still willing to talk about topics that we've all pondered at some point, he says. So we appreciate that. And Sela Pleroma um, says that he found this podcast and he was hooked. They're open to exploring theology and different viewpoints that evolve as early Christians attempt to outline the parameters of the faith. What a gift. So I just wanted to say thank you to all these people who have been uh, rating, reviewing, and most importantly, supporting us. Um, our, our fees and costs um, are not terrible, but, but get close to $200 uh, just, just to upload the podcast to a server um, and have that available so that the whole back catalog um, can be downloaded and listened to. Um, so I wanted to just say thank you to all of our supporters and Patreons. Um, also, um, I know this is getting long. Uh, we're going to ha actually have a lot of podcasts be uploaded here in the next couple months. I'm doing some teaching at a local church. Um, and so I think I'm just going to go ahead and upload those because it's me explaining what it was like to hear Augustine be a pastor and preacher and what it was like to go to church in North Africa. Um, so if, uh, if anybody out there listening is interested in having uh, one of us or me uh, come talk about a little bit of some of what I study and some of the early church, you can listen to that, see if you find it interesting. And uh, if you do, maybe I, you can get into contact with me on our Facebook page and we can talk about how I could come uh, and, and sort of share with you some of the things that I have studied and learned about Christianity, especially in Africa. Um, but anyway, on to the podcast. So here's our long podcast uh, on uh, the beginning of Book 10. Uh, we will have one more podcast on Book 10, which we've already recorded, which should be released uh, before long. So thank you for listening. So we are turning to Book 10 of the Confessions. Uh, last book, last podcast, we talked about um, the death of Monica, what she meant to him. Uh, they had their experience of God, whatever that is exactly. Uh, they call it the ascent, typically. Um, and so now, the, the the strange thing about confessions, and this is a problem that has troubled scholars for generations, how do, how do we characterize this as one whole book? Um, because the first nine books are autobiographical. Uh, the, the last four books are not. Uh, and so part of what Augustine's going to go through, he's actually, you could sort of think of that, like some people have said, it's sort of like he gives the prolegomena in the last four books. 
he sort of explains how he's able to say the things that he says in the first nine books uh, by what he says in the last four books. That is, how does he have a memory? How does he understand time? How does he understand creation? Uh, these are some of the themes that he explores in the latter books. Um, and they sort of give a kind of um, apparatus for understanding the things that he was able to say in the first nine books. Um, but so, yeah, so he says a lot of different things. Um, this, this book is mainly about memory, uh, but he also does sort of give you a little bit like, you know, he talks about the need to confess, uh, the Lord so that others can hear. Um, and it's sort of an interesting way to start with this question of whether or not people will believe him, um, about, uh, what he says in this book. Um, so, uh, he says, um, he, he says on uh, – this is like chapter three. Um, I cannot prove to them that I am telling the truth, but as far as those whose ears love has made open to me, they believe me. Um, and so he, he's, he really has this trust um, – or he has this question about whether or not he's trustworthy um, for others to hear him. But it's just – it's sort of a weird thing because he is like – I mean it's almost postmodern um, or something, right? Like he's like speaking out to whoever's reading him. And this is such a self-consciously conversational book, first with God but also with another. So I guess I could just start there. Like it's sort of an interesting thing. He sets up this like tripartite uh, structure or not structure, um, sort of like dialogue, right? So it's a prayer um, first, but he's also aware that it's a red prayer. Like first start, you know, book 10 starts, you know me, let me know you, let me, uh, let me know even as I am known, you are the strength of my soul, enter into it and shape it to your will so that you keep and possess it without blemish or wrinkle. So he, he's addressing God. Um, but then he goes on as the quote that I read and starts addressing the fact that he knows that this is going to be read by other people. So anyway, what say you about this sort of interesting way of conceiving what this book is? Hmm. I didn't think about it until now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, what are you... <clears throat> sorry. What are you asking? Like, could you maybe uh, simplify your question a little bit? Kind of like one statement there, Chad? Sure. Like, do you ever... Th I mean, we could we could go about this in a couple different ways. But, like, do, when, you're, when you're praying out loud, do you think about the fact that other people are listening to you pray? Uh, and so... Which is to say, like, obviously he is – this is a prayer. This is written to, – addressed to God. Um, but then he also kind of addresses the reader as well, which is not some way that I normally think of praying. Um, and it's also not a way that I normally think of writing a book. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just sort of an interesting the, – the question is, like, who is the audience for this book, I guess? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, I think – I mean the first thing – the first question I would answer – by saying, I always think about, um, I always think about how, uh, about who's hearing me pray when I'm praying out loud. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and your mind, my mind, I don't know, goes through a ton of different thoughts. Cause on the one hand, I'm sitting there thinking I need to pray authentically. Right. I need to pray as I would pray if I was alone and I need to not try to put on a show. And yet that is the opposite of what I, well, that's the opposite of my inclination, right? Because even though that's what I'm telling myself to do, my inclination is 
Uh, oh no, am I repeat to ask questions? Oh no, am I repeating myself? Uh, am I praying about something silly? Am I sounding selfish in my prayer? You know, so you kind of <clears throat> begin to to hit on these various things that you need to do in prayer to sound um, normal. You know what I mean? Right. And, like all the all the things that bear in a social situation start to now bear down on your prayer. Exactly. You're like, oh, I don't want to be praying a boring prayer. I don't want to pray too long. I don't want to pray too short. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's uh, it, it's a it's a very difficult thing. And then in terms of I, I don't even know how to relate to the to the situation of somebody writing a prayer down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. I. I. Oh well. I was once in a band, and <laughs> it was a different alternate version of Trevor that was in a band at one mo time. And I guess, and I, I just realized, as I was about to say, I don't know what it's like. I guess sometimes some of the songs I wrote were prayers. But now that I think about it, yeah, that I mean, it was for music. So it was so ultimately performative that... I really was mostly thinking of performing it. Um, so, and I don't know, there's like kind of a hiddenness in song because at least live, everything's really, really loud. And a lot of people can't perfectly hear what you're saying anyway, but um, I don't know, I guess... Yeah, not literally something for people to be read. There was no published word somewhere, but it's so I guess it's more similar still to just praying out loud and I'm not really sure whether it was well, I want to say it was authentic, but I I don't know if it's literally how I'd pray though. That's completely different. Yeah, the authenticity is sort of the fascinating question in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, it just it's just it, am I actually talking to God? Or am I talking to other people? Can I be talking to all those people at once and still be authentic? Or, I mean, you know, the part of the, you know, somewhere in there you have to consider the fact that what Augustine learned as a rhetor was to construct a self for people to listen to and hear. Like it is all an artificial art to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, that's what he learned to do. Um, was to create a self that is heard um, and that is persuasive. And there's the whole idea of the persona, uh, part of the progymnasmata, part of the training uh, in rhetoric was uh, putting on the, you, you were like an actor. Um, you learned to be an, you know, and you would put on the guise, Augustine says in book one, he took on the guise of Juno and the rage of Juno um, and the jealousy of Juno. And so he would practice um, as a kid you know, in school, he would practice being a god so that he could make an image of himself or make a uh, um, make a persona of himself for people to hear um, and try to make that persona compelling, um, which is something that I feel like if I said today that I was making myself a persona to be compelling when I prayed, um, you, you would have a lot of questions yeah. about whether or not I was deceiving you. Yeah, right. Well, just think about, especially if you think about, you know, uh, certainly evangelical Christianity, um, you know, some m kind of broader categories of Protestant, 
right? Protestantism has to some degree, I mean, not true, like I said, in Anglicanism and probably <clears throat> elsewhere, um, has kind of been against the idea of form prayers or prayers that are written out, you know, there's a sense that when somebody gets up at a podium to speak and share a prayer, when he reads from it, there's a sense in which it's not, I don't know, I don't know what the criticism is, but, you know, there is an, an antagonism towards it, you know, that I think many Protestants tend to feel, certainly evangelicals, um, they don't read from prayer books. There's this idea that if it's not extemporaneous, impromptu, and from the heart, uh, quote, end quote, right? Um, yeah. from, the, from the heart, then it's somehow in like not right. Chad, it actually makes me think of uh, a series of conversations you and I had years ago uh, on, Im on impromptu prayer. I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know if you remember, you would, you don't mind me sharing, do you? No, please, yeah. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I just remember, because I, of course, as our listeners, I'm sure, remember i'm from a very evangelical very kind of contemporary denomination whereas at the time anyway you were episcopalian or at least yeah. uh involved in the episcopal church and uh you were you know you're you were reading from a prayer book and and i i, I can't remember exactly you know what you said but you were talking about how you were asked to pray at something and how you weren't the biggest fan of doing the impromptu prayer and we kind of had a back and forth. And for me, like I had just started using prayer books, so I was using them. But for me, there was still kind of a sense that I had when I would read the prayer books in as prayer that I felt like I was like cheating somehow. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, and then you were like, I was, I remember asking you, I'm like, well, what do you pray impromptu? And you're like, well, not very much. <laughs> yeah. You know, has that changed, by the way? I mean, now that you're I mean, you're going to a, a to a more evangelical church now, right? Yeah. So um, I was. Yeah, that's true. So well, we should get Trevor's thoughts on this um, as insofar as he's willing to, uh, because I think he is involved in, a, in an Anglican or Episcopalian church. Right, Trevor? Uh, correct. Um, but it is sort of funny. Part of my responsibility or not my responsibilities, part of my service to my church now uh, is that I help write the worship services. Oh. Um, and so part of what I do is actually bring liturgical written elements to a very evangelical congregation. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, and so actually in two Sundays from the time that we're recording this, um, I wrote a, a service that we're going to use that's entirely cons consists entirely of uh, Psalms that Augustine loved and prayers that Augustine wrote. Huh. Uh, oh, that's cool. And I will actually give a little um, spiel in the middle of the service uh, during our offering about Augustine and about why we're using Augustine for um, Black History Month, um, but but also just for the influence of the African Church um, on the Church Universal. Okay. Um, By the way, you kind of just dropped that in there. I'm super curious about using Augustine during Black History Month. Yeah. I well, mean, so as a as a uh, so sort of like so what we what we decided to do was to expand the idea of Black History Month to <clears throat> African influence on the church global. Uh, and so to, to not only think about like black African-Americans, but to think about Africa in general as having a long tradition of Christianity and how that fits into the global church. Gotcha. Now, Augustine, uh, okay. though, is 
Augustine's not black, right? Not he would no, no. He is so this will be one thing that I explain. Yeah, he's North African. His mom was probably Punic. Um, so we're thinking more olive toned, um, more actually, actually would probably look more Middle Eastern um, than uh, would look like sub-Saharan African. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Do you? Uh, that, uh, do so, you oh, sorry. So to answer your question, though, I still pray primarily with prayer books. Um, I, it's not that I don't ever play, pray extemporaneously. Um, but, but yeah, I, mostly I try to use, um, recorded prayers and things, but I do go to an evangelical church and all of this is also a long sort of interesting, uh, thing that my, my pastor, I think listens to these now. Um, and he was like, he came to me and he was like, wait a minute. So what are, where are you at theologically? <laughs> uh, we're, we're going way off from Augustine's confessions here, but I feel like it's kind of, it's an interesting moment. We're nearing a hundred thousand downloads and I, even my own spiritual and theological journey um, is pretty fascinating. And the, what I recorded then I probably hold different positions than some that I espoused in the first series of, you know, 10 or so episodes. I, I can't remember precisely, but. Yeah. So Trevor, what, what, what have, you know, what do you think about this idea of like producing prayers and, you know, sort of the, almost the show of, um, of his prayer? Um, well, I mean, I'm comfortable with prayer books and memorized prayers. I actually think that's, I don't know, maybe this is totally anti-intuitive to other folk but my thought was actually that memorized prayers is the one way to be authentic while mm. publicly praying um or you know what well not the one way i mean one of the ways to be authentic um because at least for me sometimes that's just the best that i can do because i don't know what to say yeah but but then um any number of prayers will automatically come to me and I could say them publicly easily because well you sound cool because right. <laughs> it sounds really lucid when you just start saying a, a prayer you memorize it obviously but but at the same time I feel like it it is authentic I mean I I do I came from a really evangelical background as well so I I remember when I used to think that they were inauthentic and I've now experienced why they can be which is namely the same reason saying anything by rote can be inauthentic it's you can literally repeat it because now it's just an automatic process that you can sort of engage in at any time while literally thinking about i don't know anything else you could be thinking about what you're going to do later that day while saying the you know the creeds for example um i think during the nicene creed my thoughts wander more than almost any other time uh to be perfectly honest with you but uh but yeah i don't know there's but other prayers like you know confessing you know most merciful god we confess we've sinned against you that prayer i yeah. i take that one like super seriously um yeah. because of what it's supposed to be about and the, and sometimes when i'm confessing prayers privately quietly alone I still just use that prayer often because it's it's just so much easier. It's it's a way of 
<laughs> I may I may extemporaneous extemporaneously add to it, like you know, for what I have done, and then literally say something I have done, for example, or what I've left undone, and say, "Gosh, I hated the fact that I just wasted this afternoon." <laughs> like I might be a little more authentic in those ways and kind of add to memorize prayers, but to me, it's yeah, I don't know. If you're basically, this is all just to say. And I think this is kind of obvious, hopefully, but if your mind's in the right place while saying a memorized or rote prayer, um, there's a way in which it's more authentic and yet easy to do publicly. So I don't know. Well, it's it's so anyway, I, I feel like part of what I was doing with that, like Augustine in throughout books 10, 11, 12, as we go along. Um, sometimes um, these they call them aporia, um, and it's a it's a Greek word, but it has to do with like sort of almost like creating little conundrums. So it's sort of like Augustine creates little knots and then tries to see if he can get himself out of them. And mm. sometimes it seems like he can, and sometimes it seems like he can't. Um, <laughs> and sort of towards the uh, we're probably only going to get through half of this book. And at one of the halfway points, he just calls out to God. He's been going on for, you know, uh, probably a couple of like his little chapters. And so he'd be going on for pages about memory. And then he'll say, oh, Lord, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's these like he'll have these sort of funny moments where he like he sets up his own problem and then he doesn't know how to get out of it. <laughs> um, and so and th th that'll come along with memory. But so I sort of created this problem of Augustine is praying, but then he realizes he's writing it down. So then he thinks, well, someone's going to hear it. So then what is the solution for him? Are they going to believe him? Um, are they going to trust him? Are they going to think he's telling lies? And then he says this. He says, for, for, uh, for whether it approves or disapproves of me uh, – or who, who is the uh, – Oh, let's let those um, that is let the people either approve or disprove of me. These are the people to whom I shall explain myself. Let them sigh with relief when I act well. Let them sigh with sorrow when I act bad badly. And here's here's how they can do that. All the good I do is inculcated by you and given by you, O Lord. All my wrongdoing is my own fault and your sentence upon me. Um, so what he actually says is he says. He, it's funny because he's so self-reflective about this. Like he doesn't just do it and assume that you'll believe him. He lets you know that he's aware of the fact that he's putting on a show um, in a sense or that he's like exposing people to his inner prayers. Um, and then he says, well, shoot, now they're going to think I'm uh, just putting, putting them on, like making this all up. And then he mm -hmm. says, actually, though, the reason that they won't is because if I have done anything good – it is what God has done for me or through me. And so it's good because of the God who makes it good, not because of me. So whatever you see in here that's to like to his blame, he says, that's mine. That's my own because I own my own sin. Um, and so to the extent that I have sinned in doing this, that's on me. Um, but if there's anything good or useful, it is the God uh, who is truth, who will make it, who will make you trust and believe it because he is the one who does good things. Um, mm -hmm. And so he sort of creates this problem. And then he says, actually, the uh, he does have a solution for this one. And the solution is actually that if anything good is done, it is God who does it in him. And uh, my one final little bow tie on this, my advisor, Father McConey says, that his understanding for Augustine is the only thing that Augustine has that is his own is his sin. 
He has nothing mm. of himself um, ex- except for sin. Uh, but anything he has that is good, it's not actually his own. It's actually uh, what he shares with God and with uh, God's church. Of course, a pi- I think a kind of like pious understanding would always give that answer, right? Yeah. I mean, it, to be honest, I, I feel really bad, but a little kind of, uh, I guess, a bit of authenticity here maybe. Yeah. Like whenever I hear things like that, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. I'm like, part of my mind goes blah, blah, blah. Okay, now we do our, um, our you know, pre-required, let's tell everybody that this is all of God type of thing. You know what I mean? Which I do believe. Here's the thing. It's not like I don't believe that. I hear that and I go, of course, everything that is good that is in Augustine is ultimately from God. But partly, I don't know exactly concretely what that means. You know what I mean? Because obviously we are created by him and the degree to which we are capable of doing anything is only because of the limits that he places on us, you know. Um, and if I really wanted to analyze this whole concept theologically or philosophically, I would go into some pretty crazy spots. Because on the one hand, it raises questions of, of um, well, I mean, basically culpability and, and praiseworthiness. You know what I mean? Like, um, in general, we see people who are good and kind and people who we deem to be praiseworthy and we want to praise them. And we see people who are culpable and bad and we want to blame them. Um, but it's like, so, so it's like, I find, I guess what I'm saying is I find it kind of unhelpful in life to, to just think about all the good as coming from God and all the bad is coming from me. I, 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 that's true. I theologically accept that. I think that's what the scripture teaches. I just, I end up just not really being able to engage it in any kind of a meaningful way, I guess, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I I sympathize with those feelings. Often when I hear it, I'm I'm interested kind of not in the uh ethics question, which is where you went, which I didn't which I actually didn't even think of. I'm always like concerned about the metaphysics. I'm like, well, what, you know, like what is this goodness and what's it grounded in and what relation does it bear to what, you know, subject and is that relation, is this like a transitive relation? That's how it's somehow goodness coming from God. And I, I just wonder what people mean, if, if they have this really complex thing in mind or whether they just, or they're saying something about grace, because then that I kind of understand, sort of, but. Well, he is the father sort of, of grace, grace. Or, or the doctor of grace. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. That's that's how he gets out of the solution. I also think part of the fun in reading Augustine, or that's the way he gets out of the problem. That's his solution. I think part of the fun of reading Augustine, though, is how aware he is of all of this. Um, if any, if any, of this like like no one, there are just no other writers that we read from the early church that are so self aware. Um, of yeah. all of the things that they're doing, and so he may not have the perfect answer or the right answer. I actually think. Um, I put, put put some marks in my book where I'm like, eh, I think he gets some some philosophy of uh, language quite wrong here. 
Um, but, um, but it, you know, part of what's fun about him isn't necessarily that he gets them all right, uh, but just the, the sort of like the recognition that there's a, a solution that, that there needs to be a solution, that this is a real problem. Um, and how he's able to bring that about in a world where there didn't seem to be as people people as concerned as he was um, with this this um, you know uh, well with a lot of the, I mean we could say this about a lot of different things but language or memory or whatever right yeah, yeah I mean that... <clears throat> I, sorry like like I said I, theologically it's the right thing to say but I just like my big my big thoughts it, I always go down one of two routes. One, well, I guess they're both related. One is kind of just a personal critique. I think, I mean, I get what you're saying on on Augustine. I mean, well, actually, no, let me let me qualify what I was going to say. Uh, you're right. Augustine is the most self-reflective by far that we've read. Um, in fact, I think maybe that's what makes him so important uh, is that for the first time you can get in somebody's head and you can see somebody putting pen to paper about what we feel, you know what I mean? Um, and I, I think his answer is exactly what I would have given. I mean, well, maybe not exactly. And certainly I wouldn't have said it as eloquently or beautifully um, or intelligently. It's, it's just my mind here goes one of two places when I hear what he said, which I think is right. And that is just what I, well, what I said earlier, it raises the, it, it, it kind of creates a sense of apathy to the response because you're like, oh, well, that's just piously what you're supposed to say. And then the other part is just the issues of free will and responsibility, which is automatically where I go, because if everything in me is bad and none of it is good, um, and if the only good stuff does, in fact, come from God, then that raises a lot of question of how people are held blameworthy and how... God meets out justice. And of course, and, you know, I don't want to open up this bag of worms. Um, we already, I've already said it before. I am not personally, and, I, you know, I, I'm not personally uh, reformed. I, I don't hold to a Calvinist position of soteriology. This idea that, um, that grace is uh, monergistic, right? That it just comes from, or I should say that it works without human response, you know, but I do struggle with then what is it that I'm contributing to the conversation or to the, to the synergistic relationship that I have with God? You know what I mean? What of it comes from me? And I guess, I mean, and this is something Chad, that's still in spite of having read what we've read, it's not super clear to me from Augustine, just where he stands on that particular subject and, and how well he's flushed it out. Like, what in salvation is from him or and not just salvation, but in life, in my relationship with him and in, in my life as I walk like through life, what of it is from me? What is from him? And if there is something from me, there runs up against this other weird problem, which is that he of course created me. So even that in some sense comes from him. And then that just brings us back to problems of, of free will and responsibility, you know? Yeah. Yeah, my my way to want to answer that is to hop to Aquinas and uh, and or uh, well, my favorite reader of Aquinas, who I've probably learned more about Aquinas from, is from Herbert McCabe. 
um, and he does some stuff with why we should say that free will comes from God, um, but and what that means for our ability to act to tr- to act um, freely. Um, but anyway, it's not it's not exact. I'm not exactly sure that that's what Augustine. If that's really the case that Augustine himself is actually making, uh, but it is. It's a more interesting way uh, to to solve this problem. That is to say that he he talks about first and second order causes and um, how those actually flesh themselves out and you know god is the fact that there is a will rather than no will um and so the fact that our freedom is grounded in god's freedom doesn't make it any less free it's just the question of first and second order causes uh, mm. which might sound like pious nothingness um but it, it was at least it's at least compelling somewhere along the line and it's not the it's not precisely how um, I think it it may be a reading of Augustine. I'm not sure it's the obvious reading of Augustine. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah. Anyway, Trevor probably knows the Aquinas bit better than I do. But <laughs> uh, I mean, I only know Stump's interpretation of Aquinas, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I well, Augustine would know his Aristotle, so he, in fact, he says some things in here that seem to. Uh, suggests he knows his Aristotle. So it, I think, um, or is that right? Am I, am I wrong? I would imagine he's, he knows his Aristotle. Well, interestingly, the um, only book that he mentions by name from a Greek philosopher is Aristotle. Um, he just talks, he he just mentions the Libri Platonici, um, but he never actually tells us what Platonists he's reading. The only book that we actually know that he's reading is, uh, Augustine's cat or, uh, Aquinas, Aquinas's categories. Or you meant, or sorry, Aristotle's categories, Aristotle. yeah. Yes, Aristotle's, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, same person though, almost. <laughs> Just yeah. kidding. Uh, yeah, no. Um, oh yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that. So yeah, he does. Anywho, yeah, I suppose if um, it, I guess it just depends on what he's read, of course. But the idea of intellect and will, and what exactly the will is, a power to do in people um kind of is related to aristotle's view of the different souls of course and the animal soul gives you this principle of self-motion which in and of itself at least by modern years and like modern free will literature sounds a lot like agent causation and if you have agent causation it really is like this it's a pretty unique ability. It's this ability to, um, you know, be the first cause of a causal chain um, with no preceding cause. So you're you're your own first cause of all your actions. So, um, and that includes mental actions because you also have a rational soul. Uh, but then, like your, I, from what I understand, at least for Aquinas, it's grace fixes the intellect. Um, basically, by grace, you're able to sort of present to the will what is good and then will what is good whereas before your intellect is maligned anyway that i mean yeah it does get into some sort of uh, other deep issues but i would think that that's how you'd have to talk about good things coming from god there's a sense in which you have to be directly responsible i would think literally for material things that happen if agent causation is true which i think is a pretty plausible view of free will um, but then it's like sort of by the grace of God that you'll end up um, sort of hating 
sin in loving God. And so it's, I don't know. Yeah, you're freely doing it because, yeah, blah. Now we get into soteriology. Some Something gets you that grace at some point. So Yeah, well, and their definition. And, of anyway, grace, yeah. Yeah, the definition of freedom in most of these cases, Augustine included, is the ability to, to, to do good. Um, which is not the way that we typically talk about freedom. Um, and that's where, to, like, that's Tom's point. But, um, right. Yeah. Freedom just is the ability yeah. to do good. That's why, like, because we want to call God free. Um, and so if God is free, um, but God by definition can't sin, how do we call him free? Well, because he can do the good. Um, you right. know, yeah, what's traditional, kind of the traditional main definition of freedom is the ability to do other than what you are in fact doing. Right. Now that's, well, would, I'm going to say the traditional you know, theological or the traditional Christian response was not what you defined. Gotcha. Yeah. In fact, the, is what most people mean when they say freedom. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. I have this paper right next to me from a talk. I was at a historical case for asymmetrical freedom. And this person was talking about Descartes. But it was like um, assumed for the longest time, and I think still by some people today, but people debate about it. But it, it wasn't even a thing argued for. It was just assumed that for good actions, you don't need the ability to do otherwise for it to be a free action. It's only when it's uh, a morally bad action do we think uh, you're culpable if you had the ability to do otherwise. Um, so that's the asymmetrical point. Um, we we Wait, want the it's arguing, it, Let me get that straight. It's arguing that we don't take into consideration the ability to do otherwise when it comes to praising somebody for good deeds. Yeah, it's actually well. What it is is it's this person. They gave this talk. They were citing mostly modern, so it was like Descartes and Leibniz and some others, um, where they give passages for evidence that they had this asymmetrical view of our freedom. But uh -huh. uh, at the talk, I got to ask her what she thought about the medievals and Aquinas. And she thinks, yeah, actually Aquinas might have this view as well. Um, she goes, but people debate about that, but certainly some medievals did. She, she, her contention sort of like historically, it was just an assumption by a lot of philosophers that, uh, that they didn't really argue for. They just, they all had this sort of intuition that, for good actions, you didn't. It didn't require the ability to do otherwise for you to be responsible for that good action. Yeah, that's um, right. That's the historical Christian position. Yeah. Where, that seems yeah. very weird to me, though. Well, but so the the reason that the well, so the reason that was the word that I wanted to get into. Um, a, for Aquinas, in order for it to be a reasonable action, it has to accord with reason. Um, and so, just the ability to do otherwise is uh is not sufficient right because it would be in fact irrational to do something against reason so it's in order for it to be a reasonable action for the good it has to accord with reason um and and so doing so it depends on what the action is if it's the wrong action it's an unreasonable action um and so to do something unreasoning um is just to do something uh it wouldn't it's not worth calling it free because it doesn't fit with a uh, fit within the reason for what is good um, and for what is truly good. Um, and so if you can't um, make that connection, that tight of a connection between your action, reason, 
and good, um, you know, then then it's just it doesn't it's not worth calling it free. You're just doing things randomly, and you're a law unto yourself, um, and that is by definition and that is by definition sin. And so the question hmm. isn't whether or not you could yeah. choose otherwise. That's an almost an unhelpful question. Yeah, that's. I, I'm not really. I, I'm having a hard time following that reasoning, right? I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, you come up with simple scenarios, right? Um, you, I mean, you you take a child and the child does something wrong, and you say, "Go apologize," and the child's like, "I don't want to," and then you say, "If you don't apologize." I'm going to spank you or whatever. I'm going to take away this toy or whatever. The kid goes up and apologizes. And you're just like, oh, well, this kid really didn't do something that was good. He couldn't do other than what he's doing. He because Well, I mean, he could, but he didn't want to get spanked or, <clears throat> excuse me, he didn't want to uh, get rid of or didn't want to get his toy taken away or whatever it was that he's trying to avoid. Um, so we don't really praise what he did. And that just seems natural. And I, I don't, I, I guess the... Yeah, you know, bringing in the, the what you just described, I see that doing something that is irrational is irrational by definition. I just don't see what that has to do with um, whether it's praiseworthy per se or so, whether it's good. Because usually when we think of goodness, it's not even about rationality. It is about freedom, right? Trevor? Um, yeah, yeah, that's... So rather than think... Because the kid's not praiseworthy in the scenario, right? I was yeah. gathering that was the point. Yeah. yeah, so that's not the story they want to tell. They want to say, imagine an action um, that is praiseworthy. And now if we, which we could probably come up with an example, I don't know. But if you come up with an action that is praiseworthy, but that they also couldn't have done otherwise, we often, I guess, just don't think that the fact that they couldn't have done otherwise takes away their praiseworthiness. Um, at least that's the common sort of intuition is, is supposed to be the point. And for Aquinas in particular, it does have to do with reason. He thinks huh. um, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't so, resonate. That doesn't resonate with me though, because I, so like his, his example, uh, so his example, just a real quick example would be like, let's say a mother does something really heroic. Like, I don't know, runs in a burning building to save her child. Um, there's a way in which Aquinas will actually want to say like she couldn't have done otherwise because um, her intellect is just going to present to her only one thing as good, which is save her child. And that's just what she's going to will in that scenario because she's a mother. And so there's a way in which she couldn't have done otherwise. Um, and we may all like praise her after in a heroic way, like, wow, that was really brave. That was crazy. Um, but if if we don't think she could have done otherwise we're it's not going to affect that praiseworthiness we're still going to think the action's praiseworthy if if you don't like that if you think well Aquinas is just wrong she could have done otherwise you could you could probably still like i don't know construct a like a frankfurt type example now to bring in some contemporary philosophy um to where someone couldn't have done otherwise technically but they did something good and so for some reason, it's just that praiseworthiness, there is debate about this, it's not like open and shut, of course, but for some reason, at least historically, praiseworthiness just didn't seem to require that um, for most philosophers. Yeah, let me <clears throat> let me counter to that, to that example, because so now I, 
starting off by freely admitting that the kid that went and apologized actually could have done otherwise. He could have taken the spanking or he could have taken the toy being taken away. So I've got to probably sit down and think about it and construct a better one. And if I was to come up with a Frankfurt kind of example as to what you're describing, that takes some more time uh, for me to, I'd have to right. sit down and think about it. But <clears throat> in this example, I think of a couple things. One, I do think she definitely could have done otherwise. And had she done otherwise, we would have blamed her horribly, right? I mean, if she was like too scared, yep. for instance, to go into the building to save the child, then she would have been awful. Uh, and we, we would have found her highly morally culpable. So she could have done otherwise. But then I would also add this. Let's say take a neutral stranger and put him in the exact same situation. The stranger runs in to save the child. We actually think that, that's, that stranger is more praiseworthy than the mother because she it was actually harder for her to resist that impulse. He has lots of reasons not to run into the building and very, very much could have done otherwise. Um, and in fact, could have done otherwise without the moral culpability. Well, at least maybe not without it, but with a far lesser degree, because we would sit there and think, oh, a stranger doesn't have the kind of like biological and connection and therefore moral obligation. Right. Like and so, yeah, we actually praise so him super... because, wait, we actually praise him because I think at least partly because he is more able to do otherwise. So the level of praise I... is higher. I think the level of praise has more to do with the fact that the action does seem supererogatory rather than obligatory. Um, it, I mean, maybe it's tracking level freedom. I, I think it's, it is, though, more tracking the first thing you said, which is it does seem obligatory for the mother and it doesn't seem obligatory for this other person. So it seems even more charitable what they're doing. Um, but let's. But that is still a good point. People do talk about supererogatory actions being perfect examples of praiseworthy actions that seem like you could have done otherwise, because that's kind of the definition if they're not obligatory. I'll run this other example by you, because this is the one that I think either Stump used or maybe it was my professor. I don't now really remember. But see, I'm going to give you this one, and now you might not think this deserves praise, though, which is my problem with it. But just imagine someone walks up to a mother with a, like a baby in a stroller, walks up to her on the street and says, sell me your baby for $5. And the mother goes, no, like, you're crazy. Um, so like Aquinas, from what we can tell, would take the hard line here. That, like that's a good action. So tech, in some sense, it's a praiseworthy action. <laughs> See, that's the part that you might, your intuitions might go, it's not praiseworthy. But it's a good action. Um, she sees the good as obviously not doing that. She's going to care for her child. That's the good thing to do. But I think there's this obvious, there is a more intuitive sense here in which the mother couldn't have done otherwise or wouldn't have done otherwise, you might think. But uh, Aquinas will say couldn't have done otherwise. And yet it was, we can still praise her for it. It was good. But she obviously would have never chosen any rational mom would have never chosen to sell their child for $5 to some stranger. So I don't know. Yeah, I Maybe mean, that gets your intuitions going in the right direction. Maybe it doesn't, but it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. I think it's just the same thing to a greater degree, right? She, she like, I, I think she's praiseworthy technically because of course to have done the other, otherwise would have been horrendous, right? 
So you have this kind of point counterpoint that that now you have a like if she had sold the baby for five bucks, that would have been an insanely high degree of culpability. Um, and because it was presumably an easy decision, um, uh, it's way way less praiseworthy, right? And maybe because there is no impulse in her strong enough that would make sense to any normal person that would you know keep her from from her her obligations to her baby. I think, I mean, I, you make a, you know, your point about supererogation is, is I think right and appropriate, but maybe what it is about supererogation that makes it so like have such a strong tug is that it often involves a, a more radically free will, right? Or I, I should say a more striking ability to do otherwise, or a more obvious ability to do otherwise. In other words, the impulses are not there that keep us doing, you know, that make us do the thing that we're supposed to do. I might be wrong. I'm just, it, it just strikes me. I'm not really arguing that it's, that Aquinas is wrong per se. I'm only trying to say that, that it's not, it, it, it does not comport with my sentiments on this, that freedom to do otherwise doesn't factor into uh, praiseability. Like, yeah. It, that doesn't comport with my sentiments. I might be wrong on it, but uh, it does. If it since it doesn't comport, that makes me go, "Oh, I don't. I guess I, it's hard for me to really just say that I agree with Aquinas because I'm not. I'm not finding it a relatable point. I guess that's all. I yeah. I agree. I agree. Actually, it's well. I I don't. I have I have kind of come around to the position that freedom doesn't require the ability to do otherwise. I'm somewhat convinced by Frankfurt examples. Ugh. You're convinced uh, by Frankfurt examples, forever. <laughs> but that's but that's because I believe in agent causation. I think yeah. there's, I do think there's other ways in which, I don't necessarily think you need to. I don't. Know, I could give other examples of that that are more boring that where you couldn't have done otherwise, but it doesn't really matter. But but for yeah, for praiseworthy and blameworthiness, it's. I'm not sure I agree with it either, but it is like a interesting sociological fact that somehow through the medievals and some moderns, early moderns at least, the sort of theistic moderns, that it just kind of went as a um, seemingly unargued for assumption. I think that's kind of neat. But there are arguments, by the way, and this will, this will I'm going to end it here, but <laughs> for my part at least, but there are arguments, by the way, from from ability to do otherwise for are not being free. And they call those the the luck objections to free will. So maybe I'll send you some papers or something. But yeah, and those would and Aquinas he I think he would like those because I think that is something he has in mind because it's related to sort of what Chad said earlier. because um, it would then just be random and thus not actually free. But hmm. um yeah, well, we are far afield from Augustine, which is fine. Um, I was trying to think about ways in which I could, uh, you know, I may just like cut this somewhere and like offer it as another podcast. Um, and yeah. This is our digression on that. But I also just can't help myself. All right, so I like Tom's example of the child uh, because I think that to me the most interesting cases are actually children because the the child does it for selfish motives, but I still think that the act of apologizing is praiseworthy. I don't know how I feel about levels of praiseworthiness or blameworthiness necessarily, but I think that's exactly what you want the child to do. You are trying to tra train the child's impulses. 
So while it is, you know, maybe in some grander sense, uh, not as praiseworthy, it is praiseworthy and it is what the child should do. And just because the child does it for wrong reasons doesn't mean that it's not a praiseworthy act. What you're trying to do is educate and train the child's will um, so that the child wills the right thing. And so how you get the child to do that is almost, almost not entirely, that in many cases, it doesn't matter how you get the child to do it. You want the child to do it, um, to, to apologize when they've done wrong because it's the right thing to do. And you have them do that over and over and over again until they are properly trained to that being their instinct. And that instinct is praiseworthy because it, of how much time it has taken for that instinct to be ingrained. Um, okay. So, yeah. I, I have to, now I have to jump to, I'm too tempted. It, but so there is a difference between the agent being praise, praiseworthy and the action being praiseworthy. So you're right. We may evaluate the action as praiseworthy, but we still may not think the agent's praiseworthy yet until they do develop the capacity you're speaking of. Yeah. Well, let, let me add too. Like, <laughs> I mean, I agree with everything you said, Chad. Obviously, I mean, you know, I see this all the time. I mean, I'm not a parent. I've said that before. So it's not like I've, done it but i've seen it constantly and i've seen children who you know parents will think that the child said something inappropriately towards me or something that i just thought was funny and they'll want the kid to apologize and it's hard for me because for the most part i'm like oh i'm not offended so it's not a problem um but i always try to step back and let the parent do their thing because i recognize that this impulse is good and i you know i i hope it's training impulses I have a suspicion it's actually training manners, which is not quite as good as impulses, but at the same time, manners are important too. Um, and so if the child develops a habit of manner, that's good. And that, that is praiseworthy. Although in all honesty, I, I actually praise the parent in that instance, not the child. I think it is the parent who's the one who's doing the thing that ought to be done. But when the child says, sorry, I don't think, oh man, that child did a really good thing there. I, like in the sense that the child is being, is as, you know, Trevor, you just made the distinction between the action and the agent, which, you know, uh, I know matters. But of course I do a, you know, I folk, you know, my ethical uh, philosophy is rooted a lot in intent. And so when the child sits there and says, I'm sorry, I'll say you're forgiven, but I don't actually think he meant it. And I don't think of that thing as particularly praiseworthy in and of itself. I think of it as a good step in the training of the child and in the development of his, at least his manners and hopefully his impulses. But I think the parents are praiseworthy in that instance um, more than the child. I guess I, I would say there's a modicum of praiseworthiness in the child in that the child doesn't want to recognizes the the kind of cost and benefit of following his parents rules so i i could appreciate that and think of him as praiseworthy in that sense but the apology itself not so right yeah i think i mean i think it's all very fascinating because i'm definitely persuaded that you know, I've been thinking about freedom the wrong way, um, which is kind of more like Tom defined. Like I'm totally persuaded by the fact that it's a praiseworthy act because it's a good act. And the question of whether or not you can do otherwise is not as important as I thought it was. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Wait, so so wait. So in all honesty, you're telling me that if a kid comes up and says, I'm sorry, because his parents just threatened him, 
you think of that as the same kind of moral behavior as when a person comes up to you genuinely like stricken in soul because they hurt you you think that's like a the same that is the same kind of moral praise worthiness so to speak no, because of the reason that I said, I have to think about the process by which or where the child is in their formation. I still think they're both praiseworthy acts. Um, and I, but I think the question is to what degree is the praise, like the praiseworthiness is in the act. Um, and then the other question, like to, to use Trevor's distinction, um, the act is praiseworthy. And I think the other question is just how we are training that child. Um, and I think, it's not free. Well, so here's my problem. The question is, I don't want the freedom. Uh, I don't want the freedom of that child to be the ultimate good. Um, so more pe people are more concerned about the freedom of the child to do otherwise. And I'm more concerned about the child doing good than whether or not the child could do otherwise. Um, and so like, I think we have put the ultimate good at freedom. Um, so what is the best act? It's a free act. No, it's not. The best act is a good act. And whether or not you had the ability to do otherwise is not interesting um, because we're. Um, I, I mean, yeah, it, but here's but I think that misses the kind of the point of what I mean, I am certainly willing to admit that there's probably more in a moral action than merely freedom. Well, not am I willing to admit it? There's certainly more. But the question fundamentally is, can you have a good act when somebody isn't able to act freely in it? And I and so the question isn't is freedom sufficient? The question is is freedom necessary? And it seems to me that freedom is necessary. Fair enough. Um, I'm not saying it's sufficient, but it seems to me that it is necessary. And so if that that being the case, you know, it is not only helpful; it's necessary to consider freedom in the subject, unless somebody wants to demonstrate that freedom, or unless somebody can demonstrate that freedom is not necessary. And I think. Um, well, but, and this, and I, I think that would be hard to hard to do. Well, this is where I mean, to me, the way that you I mean, I you know, Trevor used the phrase of like something about like angling your intuitions or something. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. what the, um, but but, you, but what, <laughs> yeah, what does it mean for God to be? So the question is, what does it mean for God to be free? And what would it mean for God to do otherwise? It seems like you end up with some problems about rape being. Uh, morally permissible if God could have commanded it otherwise, or or if God is free to do uh, whatever God wants, um, in the sense that God could do something that wasn't good. Um, well, then you you know then you end up with some problems about what good and evil are. Um, and rather than have to go that route, I would rather say that God is free because God is uninhib uninhibited in doing the good. And so the ultimate, the ultimate thing that we need to consider is what God can do and not do, um, and wanting to still be able to be uh, um, consistent in calling God free and calling God good and not wanting good to have been otherwise. So you're, I mean, that's essentially the Euthyphro question, right? right. I mean, is something good because God says it is, or is something, or, or um, does He love something because it's good? Or I should say, I need to cast it in those terms. Does um, God loves something because it's good or does, is it good because he loves it? That's right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. But the thing is the reason the Euthyphro problem has a, a kind of sentimental pull is because people do think that freedom is essential to it. Right. That's why this is a problematic thing. Because they um, and of course, freedom. what's that? Because they have a bad definition of freedom. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I mean, resolving it by saying, oh, but he doesn't 
have to have freedom in it. It's not a resolution, right? I mean, they're saying, I mean, the bottom line is we do just in fact, I mean, I'm just, just, I'm just being descriptive here. We do just in fact assess people on the basis of freedom and their goodness. That's just what we do. Yeah. Now we might be wrong in that, but it's hard for me to comprehend how we talk about morality when obviously human humanity's response to moral issues is just based on people's ability to do otherwise. When when oh. a person when when Patty Duke is brainwashed to join a militia movement and to go and rob banks and she stands trial and the the defense attorney convinced the jury convinces the jury that some weird kind of psychological manipulation has happened that has made her thus. They go, oh, dang, she couldn't have done otherwise. We feel like we need to let her go. And, and maybe we, sh you know, maybe that's wrong. I'm not, I mean, there are hard questions in morality. I'm just saying that humans just do. And, and, and what's more, I'd like to say, I've not been given an argument for why free will ought not be a consideration when it comes to morality. I mean, I've just been an assertion that it shouldn't and then some alternative possible explanations. The Euthyphro question is a tough one, but the Euthyphro question is tough precisely because we do assess morality this way. I should also add that, of course, many Christians, and I tend to kind of just fall into this camp, uh, think that morality is, of course, defined by what God loves, that literally it is his freedom that defines what morality is. But I, oh man, I have, I feel like there was so many points to step in on there now i've tried to yeah keep there track. are <laughs> that's I, what happens I, when you give some when, when we have these like prolonged moments to rant right <laughs> i i um oh man earlier there was a there was a talk of uh the chad used my agent action distinction of evaluation and i wanted to also say though that there's but i wanted to help with tom's point sort of which is but then we also have the type type token distinction so normally when you're evaluating a type of action the class of actions is what gets regarded good or bad sort of in the abstract due to something else but then an actual token action of it really occurring in the world that particular action you might have to bring in the intentions of the agent so that's when the evaluation of a token action is mixed with the agent so mm. first there was that i remember going back to that but also um uh, the Euthyphro dilemma, I, well, so this is, this is, um, related to whether, um, God requires the ability to do otherwise, which I, I do think a lot of people, when you think about it for a second, um, think in some way God couldn't have done otherwise with some moral, um, with some moral abilities, for example, if you don't share those intuitions, I understand, but some people think like God can't lie, things like that. If, if you do think those are true, you do have to explain the two. And anyway, that's sort of what Aquinas was attempting to do. It was one of those projects. Um, but the Euthyphro Dilemma, by the way, I think is not actually a very interesting one. I think it's a false dilemma. I, I don't even understand why people pick one side or the other. Um, because it's like logically it's not a real dilemma because it's not of the form p or not p so it doesn't actually make you choose it's like saying p or q whereas it's not an exhaustive list and you could just come up with any other metaphysical ground of good like maybe goodness is just 
ideas in the mind of God or has to do with God's essence, but not having to do with things he loves or I don't know. You mm. could define goodness a million ways because it's it, the basically the fertile doesn't give you two options that you actually have to pick between because it's not of the right logical form. But I, I want to contend with that statement right there. I mean, because I mean, yeah, I mean, there might be a definitional thing that you could bring up that would make it not a problem. But something doesn't have to be of the form P or not P to not or to, to be a dilemma. It has to be of the form P or not P to be a logical dilemma in the sense of following proper logical structure. But you can have contradictions based on, um, you know, changes of definition or things, you know, or by using different words that have same meanings that won't be of the form P and not P. Right. I mean, you can say Tom Velasco is not married and is a. Uh, and is not a bachelor, and that's not of the form P and not P. That's P or not Q, but that's still a contradiction. Wait, um, okay. and, I'm, so I'm I'm not actually saying a contradiction. I'm saying a tautology. I'm saying or. No, but sorry, I was, but whatever. I mean, but you, my point's to the same. I mean, my point is is that if I were to put it as a contradiction, um, P or not Q is not formally a contradiction, and yet it is still a contradiction. And so too, yeah. Right? So you, you know what I'm saying so. so, so yeah, so, so something need not be formally, but it yes. would have to be equal. So that the statement you said is conceptually equal, because yes. obviously you'd think you take yeah, because the concept on the other side does equal. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, but and, and, and it, in, the youth of is not even of that form though either. Cause, well, the thing about the youth of I mean, I, I'd be very interested in why you don't think that seems like a dilemma, because it sure does seem like a dilemma to me. Right. I mean, it's I mean, like, it's hard it's, to it's think asking of a causal question. It's asking, it's asking yeah. a statement about the metaphysical, about the nature of good. What makes something good? And is it the thing that makes it good? Now, there could be other options, sure. But what it's doing is it's, it's basically pointing out that in general, people fall along one of these two options. And one way you could answer the dilemma is to give a third option. But I honestly haven't heard a ton of good third options. That's not because they're not out there. I'm not reading philosophy on subjects but i think it's wrong to say it's not interesting or it doesn't have appeal you might have read a third option and you're like oh clearly the third option is obviously the right one but that doesn't mean that the thing is an uninteresting question or something it could I, be something where you're like well we have to go let people know um about the third case you know what i mean like we got to let people know about this third option but then it's an educational point you just got to let us know you know what yeah I mean? well um I mean, what I all I meant it was something a little more humble, which is just that I said I don't find it interesting. That doesn't mean it's somehow objectively not interesting for anyone. In fact, when I first read it, I found it very interesting. Right? I mean, um, I guess what I was trying to say is I don't find it interesting anymore, just because. Yeah, now, I was just more like relaying my experiences. Like I don't find it interesting anymore because now I realize it's not a real dilemma. So what's what's your what's the thing that makes it not interesting? I am. Genuinely, just curious about that. Oh, I like. What's I just, the answer? The, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, like, well, I mean, I gave um, two sort kind of slogany answers, but there's, I mean, I just think basically you can pick. There's so many things. First of all, you can say about the metaphysics of the property of goodness. Like maybe it's. Um, goodness and being are the same in referent but different meaning. That's what sort of Aquinas would say. And thus, it's you, God is ultimate being, and then boom, you kind of get through this 
you kind of get through the problem, but in a weird, weird way that we don't really have enough, I don't have enough time to explain mm. at the moment. But yeah, basically, you can do it through any method in which you, God's, all, all you really need is God to be responsible and for somehow him to ground it. Now, ground, that's a, a vague notion, I'll admit. But the people in like metaphysics grounding literature think it's got to be just a certain type of relation that obtains, blah, blah, blah. But it's really, as long as you get the right relation between God and the goodness, it doesn't have to do with like literal intentional um, willings or lovings of uh, individuated things or anything like that. It could be something more like reflects something in God or I don't know, there's... Um, contained in the mind of god that's one answer it's kind of platonic but um yeah any any answer like that's sort of i guess just based in the metaphysics of how god is could and connects to the world in some way will get you a different solution basically it doesn't have to do with loving something i mean some you might even just say the youth for a dilemma is just phrased in a weird way because of course they were the, the original one was about some highly anthropomorphized gods who did have like lovings of individual things in a very human way. Whereas you might also take the notion that God is unlike a, like the God that we worship is unlike us in many ways in which how God has beliefs or knowledge don't, does he even have belief or knowledge in the way that we think of them? He certainly doesn't have iterated thoughts one after another in time. If we think God's timeless, so like, it might so if he loves something is this what is this a standing eternal attitude but it is it an attitude because how does what's his mental life like so i mean it might overall turn into a question much deeper about sort of i don't know features of god that you may not even be rightly able to attribute to him literally it might just be an analogy it might be close enough type talk. I don't know. I, I just think there's so many other side issues that, that technically have to be answered first um, that are actually more interesting in a way <laughs> um, now, at least for me. But um, so, yeah. All right. This is how he gets into the conversation of, of memory. He, he asked this question. So what is it that I love when I love you? Um, of course, meaning God. So we've talked about his going back and forth um, with with this is a, a written prayer, but read by other people, but he's addressing God. What is it that I love when I love you? And then he goes through all these external things in this kind of beautiful poetic way. Um, and he says, he asks the earth and the earth said, it is not he. And so he has to turn inward. So I turned my gaze to myself and said to myself, who are you? And I replied, a human being. Um, and look, my body and the soul in me are at my service. One is exterior, the other interior. Um, which of these uh, I, uh, should I have used to seek my God? And so he turns to the inner self. Um, and he says, I, the inner self, knew these things. I, who am a mind, by virtue of sense perception of my body. I asked the whole physical structure of the world about my God, and it replied to to me, I am not God, but God made me. Um, it definitely feels like he's saying that what is human is um, the mind, um, and so uh, ego. In, yeah, so ego animus per sensum corporis mei. Um, I am my mind, um, and then he says a little later on. He actually says that um, what makes his mind his mind are his memories. 
Um, and it's basically the mind is a memory. Now, he puts, like, as I said uh, early on, it's kind of hard to follow him because I don't think he actually thinks that altogether. Um, but it, it's sometimes if you take him down to one line, you know, this definitely sounds like who he is is his mind. Um, and it is his, in his mind is where he finds God in his memories. Um, and he talks about how he gets these memories um, and, and his mind as the store of these memories. Uh, but uh, yeah, so what, what do we make of this like interior turn? Is this sort of a, a mind on a stick uh, is sort of the joke uh, that people have um, sometimes about Descartes. I think therefore I am. And so Descartes mind on the stick is like, I can't remember who came up with it, but um, anyway, that's kind of a joke phrase, but this is almost seems to be what he's saying. Uh, the most important thing is what goes on in his mind, and that's where God is. So I, I guess we could start there. Yeah, well, and isn't – and Chad, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but because uh, I have not read the work, but I do know that Augustine is credited with making the argument follower ergo sum, I doubt, therefore I that's am. That's right. Which, of course, pre – I mean, is basically just an early nascent form of the argument that Descartes will popularize in the in the 16th century or 17th century uh 17th century when he says uh uh cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am yeah so book i guess book nine or book 10 from the city of god is where that comes up maybe nine mm, okay so i mean that that's <clears throat> you know this really does remind me of descartes this talk of memories this talk of thoughts and i do find it a super interesting consideration um, kind of a way that I've often thought of this particular issue. Um, I, I can't remember where the question first came up to my mind, but somebody asked me, or maybe I, maybe it's the head of the title of a book I read. It, it's will we will we remember things in heaven? Is kind of the question, and that question I think is pretty interesting because, of course, if heaven or the resurrection, I should say, you know, once we've reached our final eternal destination. Um, if we remember everything, well, we will remember the pain, presumably, but the the eternal destination is supposed to be a place where there are no tears, where God wipes away all tears and where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache. So if we remember, or if we remember those things, won't that bring pain? But then here's the subsequent problem, which is that if we don't remember everything, are we actually ourselves? And it does seem to be, it seems difficult for me to consider that I am myself if I can't, if like all of the memories are gone. It's like the memories seem to be essential mm -hmm. to who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the Lockean point, right? I think Locke had the memory view of personal identity over time. Um, and that's, it. it does come with like the puzzles of like the 60 year old man who doesn't remember being the 10 year old boy which is why Locke gave us the model of, well, as long as one, he, you know, stage of you remembers being a, another stage of you and that stage remembers the other stage, you still have like a continuous person. Yeah. But it, it's certainly a very powerful intuition because when people, for example, lose their memories, um, like due to dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that, I mean, we will say that's them, but then you have this intuition, like, you know, grandpa's kind of gone. 
like he's not there anymore people f say phrases like that in regards to people in that condition when it's when they're long gone it's really it's really hard because it's a it is a real phenomenon and uh, losing your memory so it's yeah it may it does i don't know it raises a lot of issues um both ethical and about personal identity and i thought augustine was um I, I thought it was just really interesting him writing this so early because of course um yeah, I don't know. The the next person that you think of immediately after him is Locke, and that's a long jump. So, <laughs> um, well, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing here to what, like, so the interior and the exterior, um, I just had to read, uh, or I just read um, a couple of Philip Carey's books on Augustine. I don't know, Trevor or Tom, if you've heard of him, but he's an Augustine scholar at Eastern and um, I don't know if he'll, if he's, if anybody listens at this far in, but uh, I was interviewing with him, so I had to make sure I knew his work on Augustine. <laughs> um, so I know it really well now. But he says that this is kind of a Platonic hierarchy. The highest thing is God. The less highest thing is the soul, and then the least highest thing, or like the the lowest thing is the body in the sensual world. Um, and he says that Augustine's just a straight Platonist on this. Um, and so it sort of seems, but. It, it in the it, you know I think that there are problems with that view and he sort of draws a direct line to Descartes um, just like we all did. I'm not really I I, I kind of feel eh, I'm not ready to concede that I'm not ready to concede that he is Descartes um, and he creates this mind body dualism of the way that Descartes does. Uh, mm. uh, but but it's the but it what 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 it made me think what the tre example that Trevor gave it, it, I was like well. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's exactly right. We do say things like, "Well, if they just have their body, um, you know, they're like." I was thinking of a vegetable, like you know, the sort of the case of like a, a comatose patient or something that doesn't seem to be able to respond. Like they have their body. If it's their body that's the most important thing that makes them who they are, well, then we should leave them. Um, we should leave them be. Uh, but we don't actually think that. Uh, what we think that makes them alive is some other living force. So, you know, the other difficulty here and all the things that we're going to talk about when we talk about this, you know, Latin makes a distinction between anima and animus and spiritus. Um, so there is the life-giving force that God gives to all living creatures. Um, and I think Trevor used the phrase like a self-starting creature. I can't remember what he called it. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, agent causation. It's yeah, self-moving. Yeah. You have the principle of self-motion. Right. Know. So any living thing has an anima in that sense. Um, an animus, what Augustine is most frequently talking about in this passage, um, is, um, is the mind, which seems to be – or like it's usually translated as mind. And that's also a kind of different thing from a spiritus, which – usually, although not exclusively, usually refers to something that has to do with the Holy Spirit um, and maybe not one's own sort of physical entity. But spiritus um, can mean breath, um, just like uh, pneuma in Greek. So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a whole host of um, linguistic layers here that are really going to be hard to disentangle. Um, but it's also, like I said, I feel like part of Trevor's example made me realize it's hard to resist that intuition that, of course, we don't – I mean, he doesn't deny that the body is important, um, 
But he does want to say, yeah, of course, we do think what is more important is some animating force um, that, that makes it feel alive to us. And we also usually typically associate that with memory. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, anyway, I'm not, I'm not giving an answer, but I just wanted to say I, I'm sort of putting out there that there's levels of complexity that be really hard to disentangle um, because of the – well, in, a, in, in effect, a multiplicity of terminology that in English we typically just flatten out. Um, at least in contemporary English, you'd be hard-pressed to get someone to, to distinguish between spirit, soul, mind, heart, all these sorts of things. Maybe mind and heart, but right. um, we don't mm-hmm. use them very – uh, how would you say um, systematically usually well uh, if Augustine was I think you you were saying earlier that some author took Augustine to just be a straight Platonist yeah, that well, we're, we okay I mean so one interesting thing is when we talk about the dementia or Alzheimer's patient we do have the intuition um, that connects your personal identity to your memories quite strongly, but then when we think of partial forgetting or, um, you know, partial amnesia, things like this, we then we sort of have the other intuition, like, well, he still likes bananas just like he used to. He just doesn't like remember that one instance or so, you know, and then, but but he remembers some of these other instances, so he, it's still him, and like, we it gets a little more vague. And I would imagine that for if Augustine was a straight Platonist, and I'm making no claims that he is but if he was um at the moment of writing this he has to be okay with you forgetting quite a bit and still being you if he's gonna believe in the whole the whole shebang which is the pre-existence of the soul that is then having this process of remembering uh the basically the forms or basically the abstract truths which he sort of kind of does actually talk about in chapter 10 here, remembering oh, he, when he's talking about... Yeah, De Magistro and this passage in the Confessions fit perfectly with epistemology or knowledge as what we remember from being our pre-existent soul with God. Although, fascinatingly, later in life, Augustine gives up the idea of the pre-existing soul. Um, so he does ultimately re- re- resist and reject that. Um, it's hard to see how he copes that or how he connects that or how he can explain uh what it means to know once he's given up the pre-existent soul but he does um does later on he realizes Hmm. that that, that's not a scriptural thing to say but de magistro in book 10 and book one um all seem to fit a platonic platonic understanding of knowledge as remembering what the soul once knew with god he does seem in this uh passage though to make a distinction like he'll be like well oh my thoughts of um sense and sights well yeah i got those through these bodily functions so but then he but then he brings up the truths of like rhetoric at least that's how mine translated yeah. it um as his, his his primary target of something that um he can't see the source of it as being anything but some sort of remembering and that made me think so does is his problem more with a priori knowledge not just all knowledge but specifically a priori knowledge which for listeners who don't know is fancy term philosophers use for just knowledge not gained through experience basically um so do you think he's taken like it's maybe a slightly modified platonic view which is a priori knowledge is the knowledge because i know plato had 
obviously just a straight view that basically all your knowledge ends up coming from um, remembering, but I don't know what. Well, I, there, there are a couple ways to answer this. His early explanation of what language is only fits the platonic explanation. Um, mm. I, I, I'm writing a chapter on my dissertation where I quote Rowan Williams and he says, um, St. Augustine is most philosophically interesting when he's not trying to be philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I think is a, I think is a brilliant line. <laughs> um, so it's like he, he wants to get sort of a sim, sort of a simplistic, straightforward explanation of how we can, um, say things and how language works but he sort of recognizes as he moves along in life or something that 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 doesn't quite work so he can't be he's not as consistent as when he's trying to be consistent uh, but he'll say other very suggestive things um which would sort of imply or could be read as he has a more comprehensive notion of this um but when he's being consistent he sounds like a Platonist, uh, but he has a hard time figuring out how to be consistent when he says these other things that suggest that he has a more complex view of, say, what language is, um, which would allow for more things like learning that doesn't have to do with an a priori knowledge of what was in the forms of God and the preexistent soul. Mm, okay. Does that, I mean, is that, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just, I, I didn't even think of... Yeah, I hadn't. I wasn't thinking of language when I thought of that, but that that does make sense. Well, it's funny because this whole thing, in a se- like I'm, you know, I guess I've been steeped enough in the, you know, the academy or the university where everything goes down to language nowadays, um, whether or not we like it. Um, sort of the Continentals have won, um, and and everything is a kind of conversation about language. But all of this requires that Augusta be able to talk. I mean, even the. You know, in a sense, the nisi falor sum um, uh, versus the cogito ergo sum requires that there be some kind of communicate. Well, maybe not even communicative. I don't know. Yeah, let's say communicative exchange between a god or a person and Augustine. That's what makes him different from Descartes, right? Like, how else do you know you're wrong? In Augustine's view, your perceptions can fail. Um, so you might not know from perception, from senses that you're wrong, but you do know because of a community who you're willing to trust to say that you are wrong. Um, and so because the, the wrongness, the mistakenness, the follower is what requires a community um, in his knowledge. Um, and so his knowledge of himself comes because of other people around him who can correct him. Um, and show that he has been mistaken because you can't be mistaken. You might think um, it'd be hard to figure out exactly how you know if your senses fail you. Um, you know, without this other element. At least that's how the case that he makes in Book Nine of of City of God is that the the, the, the ability to be mistaken requires an engagement with another being. Yeah, and that's I'm glad to know that because. I've always wondered what the context of the follower ergo sum was. Like I've never read the the section. So it, it was always interesting to me because, you know, Descartes' context of the cogito is he's starting off like Augustine with doubt. Doubt is the thing. But for him, it's like a pure doubt. It's I'm going to doubt 
until I can find something I cannot doubt. So I've always been curious. I had no idea what context Augustine was was engaged in when he came up with the the I doubt, therefore I am. Yeah. So I, th- I mean, so my take is he is not just a straightforward like connection or like anticipator of Descartes. Like I think that he has some more interesting things to say. I'm pretty suspicious of Descartes. Um, and, and most of the time, uh, and, mm. and so I, th- cause I, I think, I think Descartes does become, we are, we're, you know, we're a mind on a stick. I think that's a problem that he's, that he definitely has. I guess I've been, yeah, I've, I've probably been sufficiently, uh, uh, influenced by James K. Smith and others on this to be, to be worried about Descartes, but. Hmm. We should talk about Descartes sometime, but. <laughs> Well, we'll get to him. We'll get to him. I believe. What? When is he on the schedule? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, my son will be able to be on that podcast. Yeah, yeah nice. on his what, 18th birthday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he'll be uh, there's a Descartes when uh, we have him on. <laughs> oh man! My, sorry, my phone just rang on the podcast. Apologies. Yeah. So, you know, so anyway, he goes back and forth. Uh, he talks about the Hall of Memory. Um, actually, we could bring on uh, – this was what at some point Jenny Rollins was doing at Oxford. But, uh, yeah. Um, so she loved I, I have a question about the passage that – because it's rare that I get to talk to an Augustine scholar such as yourself um, – that I, I just – I have to have answered. So my translation – renders um oh, see i think my numbering is different it's at it's when he starts talking about the contents of memory okay. it's i guess number t- the number 12s by it i'm not really sure what that means um i guess it's 312 does that make any sense i'm not sure Chap- oh so this is, is that a- on no i would have had mine would either be 812 or 12 something else 1219 uh, it's okay it's it's a passage that mine renders it it starts with so i must pass over that faculty in my makeup yep um Line and stage okay who made me um yes yeah yep. so what what is that numbered for you Eight just so 12. i can be clear oh okay mine calls this like section three and it's got a little 12 okay i'll go by the 12 then anywho um this is when he starts talking about representations, uh-huh. or at least that's how mine says it. Yep. Which, of course, there's literally representationalists in epistemology and philosophy of mind alive today. And I was sitting there going, "Whoa!" He's saying if this is if these are really representations, um, sort of in the sense that your your mind has to represent, and not merely if this word just merely means imagining then I was I was maybe going to be a little disappointed. But if it's more like your ability to call up anything consciously, I thought this is actually anticipating a lot of people's work and they probably don't even uh, recognize it. But what what is the word, basically? That's my question. I, sure. I got to know. Sure. So, all right. So I have – I, I yeah, I was actually – his um, taxonomy here – I'm not sure how to square it with his taxonomy of signs and things in De Doctrina Christiana because that's the other passage that you would need to figure out exactly what he means by all of this. 
However, uh -huh. what he says here, the so yours said, uh, mine says impressions is the English that, that it gives. You had something else. I have representations. So it's imaginum. So an image, like literally the same word of imago dei. Um, uh, so the, is, but is this a visual metaphor, or does he literally mean then only visual imagining? So there are a couple different ways in which memory works, depending on whether or not you think he is drawing on um, the Stoics or Plato here, or a combination of both, which is actually what I think is going on. Um, he thinks that there are certain things that make a literal, like um, um, an impression on the, um, and that is like a, a pressing in a, because um, sometimes he uses the word impressum. So something pressed in on um, his soul. So you, you have like um, somehow on my soul, um, I could have a, an impression that is something um, that I see or sense or feel, a smell, touch, any of the senses makes a kind of impression on my soul and i okay by its, an imp by its impression um okay so it's it's that model which is this is kind of a, this was aquinas's model too or aristotle's for that matter but yeah so it's more like the the example i've always heard is the wax, that wax uh, stamp yep. on the seal yeah okay so, so sometimes he operates with so, sometimes he does have a kind of more visual like some it's like the the word that Philip Carey uses is he says it's like um he says it's like a movie being played that your soul can watch, um and it, it's sort of like it has more of the visual metaphor than the 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 physical metaphor, um because right because of the the plate uh or excuse me um the uh the Stoics were more comfortable with a non like sort of immaterial soul. Um, and so they needed a physical way to describe it. So that's why they used impression. And sometimes he seems to make use of that. Sometimes he makes use of some more non-physical soul that you could sort of watch in a reel, um, but not have to have a physical uh, descriptor. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Okay, that is really interesting. But I mean, because he does... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, because he does mention like, but that's the thing is he doesn't use the word that in my translation gets rendered representation. He won't use it sometimes referring to um, other things he can call it before his mind. Like, for example, a smell that he remembers. But that's what made me go, I wonder if he's restricting it or if he is really trying to capture this general notion of um, sort of things your mind's able to store, recall, and manipulate. In which case... If, if he is talking about impressions, then it might it might be going that far as to say anything your mind can uh, store, recall, and manipulate. But... Yeah, it sort of depends on what he's trying to store and recall, which metaphor he uses. I think it's actually sometimes I actually wondered and were like you wonder, or I, I kind of think that he's not exactly sure what he wants to use. <laughs> um okay um and so it's sort of like where it makes sense he's sort of more willing to go with images and then other times he goes more with impressions um and he's not exactly clear in himself one thing that i would add though that's sort of fascinating for him is he compares what's going on in or uh, sometimes uh, similitudinous is another one here there's a similitude inside um but mm. he, he compares um 
he compares what's inside his soul to the res. So that is to the thing, which is fascinating because the res ipsa, the thing itself, in De Doctrina Christiana becomes God. Um, or sometimes it seems like it's God. It's not exactly like everything else is a senium of the res. Everything is a sign of the thing itself. But here he talks about the things, which he calls signs in De Doctrina. So he sort of, it's like the, the race is his, is like, you could call, you could say that sort of shorthand for what's real. Um, and what's real in this whole story actually seems to be the external things. The most real, the most real things are the things that he gets from without, not the thing which is from within, um, which kind of seems to be inverted um, in his senium race distinction in De Doctrina. If you take him that first way, that's that really is a very contemporary notion in film mind and epistemology. If you're if you think you're representationalist, you think beliefs are representations, and you think that their their contents is literally something out in the world, the externalist position, it would yeah, it certainly would make Augustine sound like this representationalist externalist, which that is kind of what I was thinking of when reading this, but I thought, surely I must be wrong. He's a Platonist, but... Um, I just think he's... I think he's just really hard to pin down uh, because he kind of can... He, he does sort of seem to move um, to... Uh, in different places. I mean, the, the other case that I was going to make is as he moves along in De Doctrina, the first thing he says is the race and the senium and all of that. But then at some point he says the whole world, uh, everything is senia to the one race, God. And so, but we have to deal with senia with, with, with signs, um, because that's the world that we're in. We're in a creaturely fallen world. Um, and so, and he's, you know, so he sort of there, he kind of like, I don't know, moves to what you might say is less Platonist. Um, that is the world is, is, um, uh, the world that we have to deal with. Um, and it's not less real or anything like that. Like, it's just the world that we have and we know it through signs and that teaches us things. And this side of the fall, that's just what we have to deal with. Okay. Doesn't it make sense, of course, that he would be difficult to pin down philosophically? I mean, if there's one thing that personally, I think, describes Augustine up until this point, it's that he's having a hard time pinning himself down. Yeah. And it does mm. seem like he ultimately settles on this basic thing. The Catholic Church is the fount of truth. And I can still play around with whatever ideas are out there as long as I always come back home. Right? It's like, it seems to me that he was a wanderer his whole life until he came to this one conclusion. And that is that the church is the source of truth. And so it's like everything else now devolves back to that. So he can fiddle with some, I mean, he can, he can play around with everything else, epistemology, metaphysics, um, philosophy of soul or of mind, you know, he can play around with all that kind of stuff, philosophy of language, as long as he roots it and anchors it into the church. And he probably just, is and my understanding of him even aside from what we've read thus far is that it is hard to pin down where he is theologically on things often because he changes his mind you know um 
And as long as it's rooted in that reality, I think he feels free to, to fiddle with it. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Just an assessment. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think we've, you know, we've probably done about a half a podcast on free will and uh, or freedom and <laughs> and half a podcast on book 10. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I would uh, be OK if you edited it, but um, I understand. Oh, I wouldn't edit it. I think that's. I think people would like to hear the discussion. Yeah, I'll just. I'll just make a caveat. Like, okay, roughly forty seconds to one oh seven is another discussion. (laughs) If you want to finish what Augustine says, jump to this time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the way. Definitely. That makes Um, sense. That's a good idea. All right. Well, I said I would read. I, I just uh, this is one of the the prayers that's going to be. I'm going to do a service with Augustine at my church. But uh, so. Uh, this is, um, I guess for Trevor, this would be 38, uh, would be another 10, okay. 1038. Uh, he's, uh, so this is this very famous uh, prayer from Augustine. So I'll just read it. Late have I loved you, O beauty, so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And look, you were within me, and I was outside myself. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Those created things kept me far away from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called and shouted and broke through my deafness. You flamed and shone and banished my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me, and I drew in my breath, and I pant for you. I have tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for more. You have touched me, and I have burned for your peace." That ending wow. is one of the most beautiful things ever written, I think, by the way. It's pretty good, huh? Yeah. Pretty pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to know. That that also, I guess I the one it's it's hard to know how to comment on it, but that makes so much more sense to me as far as like whatever the ascent is in book nine, it's really hard to figure out what he's describing. But what he describes there is beautiful. And I don't know if I just ascended to God. I don't really think I did. <laughs> but, but I feel like it's more likely that I would praying that prayer than trying to figure out what he was talking about in Book 9 in The Ascent. <laughs> like, the Ascent is kind of a letdown almost. Uh, but yeah. that is not. That does not let me down. This has been another episode of A History of Christian Theology. We thank you for your support and listening all the way to the end. Please check us out, uh, rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, on our Facebook page and Patreon page. We really do appreciate it. Thank you.